Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. You know, matter of fact, no concern. And so uh, came up with a couple statements to see his reaction, and uh, one of them was. Oh my gosh, I just saw her yesterday. I can't believe she's dead. And he never never said anything, never responded like, oh, no, we don't know she's dead. She's just missing nothing. There was no response to make. It was weird. It was chilling. Stands up again and just sat there staring at me. He, I don't think he was staring at me. I think he was just staring through me. I think he was just staring. His fists, you know, he had clenched fists. He didn't punch the table or anything. He just rested his arms on the table and sat there. And then he snapped out of it again. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter, and we're recording in the morning. This is, a, this is a few and far between kind of a thing. We usually have a cocktail on us, but bright and early. Bright and early, and um, your girl's back on coffee after years of not being on coffee. So You are? Kinda. When did this start? I don't know. I started by taking a sip from Matt's here and there, <laughs> and I could tolerate that. And then I started getting more bold and more brazen, and now I'm having like a little cup of coffee. Wow. And I'm, I'm handling it. I'm proud of you. You're going to be where I am, you know, having four shots of espresso every morning in no <sighs> time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, well, I'm, I'm very happy that you're on the coffee train. Um, do you want to know what day it is today? Please tell me. So today is September 28th. There is a lot of days. It's National Drink Beer Day, which we love over here. Right. And then one that you're not going to love, it's National Strawberry Cream Pie Day. Ew. Also, World School Milk Day. And uh, I'm going to give a little shout out to our friend Afton because she loves a glass of milk with her meals. I'm telling you, that's dairy lobbyists. It's all their fault that that's a thing. Um, but yeah. And, and all of the milk ads back in the day. Enjoy that milk, Afton. It's it's so bizarre. She likes it with a Philly cheesesteak. So um, <laughs> on that note, I do think that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Many of us will do whatever we can to save a relationship before throwing in the towel, especially if that relationship is a marriage. So it goes beyond mere romantic feelings. The state's involved, assets are involved, money's involved, and often children are involved as well. They'll try everything. They'll try anything, even if one party within this marriage discovers an unsavory side of their partner. They'll try to look past it, adapt to it. Why? Well, we don't want to believe that someone we married is actually a bad person, because if they are, what does that mean? Does that mean we were misguided or blinded and falling for them? It's a fact of life. You know, people hurt us. But when a romantic partner makes a complete 180 degree change in their behavior for the better, it can be a really heartening thing. When people change in front of our eyes, hope can be restored in that perhaps this relationship is savable, or at the very least, the relationship can maybe end amicably. But when we're talking about the abusive push-and-pull dynamic of romantic violence, this adds a whole new level of complexity. Victims and survivors often feel their relationship is a combination of good times and love, as well as manipulation, fear, and violence. And living that dichotomy is more difficult and complicated than any of us can comprehend. 
So we begin today's case on June 1st of 2011. Shaq announced his retirement from pro basketball on Twitter that day. And on the pop music charts, Adele's star was rising with her number one rolling in the deep while on the floor by JLo featuring Pitbull was rounding out the top five. Good time for music. Very. And that's, and at the movies, franchises were really big. The Hangover Part 2 and Kung Fu Panda 2 were popular along with the comedy classic Bridesmaids. The setting for today's story is Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And the Cape, as the locals call it, is located about 100 miles southeast of St. Louis and has a population of around 38,000 people. It's in the southeast of the state on the Missouri-Illinois state line. And the Mississippi River borders the city's east. Fun fact, the Cape was also a location shoot for the 2014 hit film, Gone Girl. And our first degree for today's story is named Jeff. So Jeff is an attorney who specializes in criminal and family law. And by the time he finished practicing a few years ago, he'd been in the game for around 34 years. So he had a really long career experiencing the highs and lows of the courtroom when it comes to outcomes for his clients. Graduated Mizzou. University of Missouri in Columbia Law School in 1985. I opened up my own private practice. I opened a second office in, in Cape Girardeau, right next to my kids' school. So I was uh, doing mostly family law, which included divorce, custody, child support, and juvenile court. I did a lot of juvenile. And then I did whatever because I was, you know, small. I was, had my own office, so I just did kind of whatever walked in the door. One of the downsides of working in family law was seeing people at their worst every single day. Jeff was one of those attorneys who wanted to finalize things as quickly as possible for all of his clients, especially when there were children involved, so everybody could move on with their lives. I mean, the best you encounter is, you know, husband and wife coming in together to do a no-fault, uncontested divorce. You know, they want to use the same lawyer, even though we have to represent one of them you know, prepare all the paperwork for the two. Um, that was the best thing to do. So I would mediate other people's divorces and try to settle their case through mediation rather than going to court. And then, of course, you get to the to the other end of it. You know, you have a lot of anger, a lot of hatred at times. What the percentage is, but 20, 30% of the cases, the parties hate each other. You know, just it's just sad. A lot of what went on in divorces. So Jeff saw every type of divorce under the sun. And around November of 2010, a prospective client in need of legal advice was referred to Jeff by a mutual friend. And this prospective client was 39-year-old Jackie Waller. So Jackie went to see Jeff at his office to inquire about commencing divorce proceedings with her husband, James. And James's middle name is Clay, so he goes by Clay. So when Jackie walked through the door, Jeff assumed that this divorce would not be unlike the countless ones Jeff had overseen before. But that assumption pivoted quickly when Jackie told Jeff that she was terrified of her husband finding out that she was even seeing an attorney. And she wasn't just terrified. She was convinced that Clay would kill her if he uncovered her plan to leave him. Came in, filled out all the paperwork, paid me, said, don't don't let anyone know. And I prepared all the paperwork, the petition, even the judgment. And she wouldn't, you know, she couldn't take any forms with her for fear that he might find them. She was 100% fearful that she knew. Like I say, it wasn't, I think it's going to happen. It might happen. I'm pretty sure it's going to It was a fact that if he found out she was seeing a lawyer for a divorce or filed for divorce, he would kill her. Jeff got a rundown on Jackie's background to learn more about his new client and her current situation. So she was born on December 26, 1971 in Bonterre, Missouri, to her parents, Stanley and Ruby Rawson. The youngest of three children, she grew up in a nearby city of St. Genevieve, Missouri. In the early 1990s, Jackie met Clay and they married in 1993. And Jackie worked as a manager with the insurance company Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. But she and Clay had difficulties conceiving and they eventually underwent fertility treatment. In October of 2005, Jackie gave birth to the couple's fraternal triplets, which is crazy, two girls and a boy. Their names are in the public domain, but to maintain their privacy, we're going to call them Abigail, Marcus, and Annie. And Jackie did the lion's share of parenting her three newborns, which must have been incredibly exhausting. I literally can't even imagine. No. But she was so ecstatic to finally be a mother and loved her kids so much. Everybody loved her. I mean, she just had a bubbly personality. She was a great mom to the triplets. Um, from what I was told, I, you know, I didn't know her outside of 
our relationship as attorney client, but they just absolutely loved her. Just nothing bad to say about her at all. They, you know, everyone that knew her, I mean, just bubbly, just effervescent, just, you know, just a wonderful person. Before she came in the first time, I was told what a great person she was and how happy and go lucky she is around friends, who knows, in the house. And we're looking at some photos of Jackie, like throughout her pregnancy and then with her three kids. And she's smiling in these photos with her children. And she looks beaming when she's pregnant, especially, you know, she went through fertility treatment. So she obviously really wanted to be a mother. And she was overjoyed when the triplets were born. But like Jack said, Jackie did all of the work. And it was at this point that the cracks in their relationship between, you know, Jackie and Clay really started to show because he did not lift a finger to help her. And he also became emotionally abusive. So these dynamics just persisted and worsened. Year after year, it didn't get better. And after several years, Jackie started fantasizing about leaving Clay. Of course, this is a huge and difficult decision because being a single mom to three toddlers would be intimidating and incredibly hard. So needless to say, during Jackie's initial meeting with Jeff, his impression of the situation was that this divorce would not be one of those amicable ones. It would likely be pretty complicated and an acrimonious divorce. It turns out that Jackie had been documenting Clay's threats just in case something happened to her. She also shared with Jeff that she broached the topic of divorce on one occasion, and Clay very ominously responded that he had a feeling that one of them wouldn't be around to watch the kids grow up. That is really fucking scary. Very chilling. So Clay's threats included telling Jackie a divorce would be her death sentence and saying, quote, you take those kids from me, I will kill you. He told her he'd drown the kids on a camping trip and leave her alive so he could see her emotional anguish. That's a disgusting thing to say and really terrifying. So on another occasion, he actually told Jackie that she didn't deserve to live and he wished he had a gun so he could blow her head off. I mean, like, how disgusting and despicable can you be? And this is what Jackie was living with every day. And Jackie's fear in Jeff's office was palpable. He could see it. Sometime while the triplets were there, she decided that she wanted to get a divorce, but she knew she couldn't because he would kill her. And he told her, she said that he told me, you'll kill me. Um, so she, she believed it 100% um, at the time. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. In 2010, our first-degree Jeff met a prospective client, a 39-year-old mom to triplets, Jackie Waller. Jackie was making plans to leave Clay, her abusive husband of 17 years, and she was afraid that if he found out, he would kill her because he'd threatened her before. But Jackie left this meeting with Jeff seeming highly motivated and moving forward with this divorce, but then Jeff didn't hear from Jackie again, at least not initially. In fact, more than eight months passed without Jeff hearing a single word from her, But this isn't totally unusual. Divorces and making plans to leave someone and to turn your life upside down can be a decision someone grapples with for a really long time. So Jeff's life and his law practice proceeded as normal. He saw his revolving door of clients. Jeff took on other cases and put Jackie's file away without giving it a second thought, keeping everything confidential just as she'd asked. But then eventually, Jackie did make another appointment to see Jeff. But she wouldn't be coming to see Jeff alone. She and Clay would be coming together. So the meeting was set for 3 p.m. on June 1st of 2011. When Jackie and Clay arrived, Jeff was really surprised at her disposition. She seemed kind of like a different person. She was totally relaxed and clearly no longer fearing that Clay was going to kill her or that she was in any type of danger whatsoever. It was kind of weird. The couple now seemed to be completely on the same page. You know, I didn't remember the file. It was six, eight months later. And so I pulled it out and saw my note that said fear, you know, fearful of death or whatever I had written down, um, fears he will kill her. Um, so, you know, I made an extra effort to make sure I didn't say anything during when they both came in and it was like, she knew that he wasn't going to kill her. She wasn't scared. She wasn't shaking. She wasn't, you know, sitting there just nodding her head while he told me everything. They were joking around at times, um, in my office, And then discussing things like he was joking. She didn't show any sign of being afraid. I think she was so relieved that, you know, she believed him 100% believed him when he told her, I'll give you the divorce. Let's get everything worked out. She was just so happy. Just, I mean, ecstatic that she had got him to agree to a divorce with no issues, no problems. Um, She was just, it was like, a giant weight was taken off her shoulders, just worrying, 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 worrying. She wants a divorce for years. And she finally gets him to agree to give her a divorce. And it's all worked out. We don't have to fight. It was just mind-boggling that she could go from 100% sure he'd kill her to coming in and showing no fear whatsoever. Like She had accepted that he was good now and was going to give her a divorce without anything happening. This was the first time Jeff met Clay, so he didn't know much about him. And there's not much information out there about his background, but James Clay Waller II was born on August 3rd of 1970, and when he started dating Jackie, her parents didn't take to him much at all. He was socially awkward, but that's not actually what bothered them about him. He was also arrogant, and something about him just rubbed them the wrong way. At some stage during the marriage, Clay actually worked as a deputy with the Cape Girardeau County Sheriff's Department, and I think that's interesting. But he was fired after only a year and never stayed in one job for long after that. He dabbled in things like construction. To Jeff, the couple both seemed keen for the marriage to be legally dissolved so they could move on with their lives. And Jeff learned in this meeting that Clay even had a new girlfriend. So it really appeared that both Clay and Jackie were on the path to moving on with their lives separately. Right. And perhaps all Clay needed to find happiness and let Jackie go was a new girlfriend. So it was reassuring for Jeff to see Jackie feeling safe. It just, it's like any other couple who came in together, they just look natural. Hey, 
We're still friends, but we need a divorce. But that's the way they were, laughing and joking. Then you would think that anything was wrong other than they wanted a divorce. At 3.50 p.m. after the meeting, Jackie called her sister Cheryl to say she was running to Clay's house in Jackson to pick up their son Marcus. And once she grabbed him, she'd be heading back home. And at this point, Jackie and the kids were living with her sister, and her two girls were already back at Cheryl's house. Jackie agreed for Marcus to stay an extra night with Clay following visitation from the previous weekend. And Cheryl expected Jackie home at around 5.30 p.m., And when she didn't arrive as expected, Cheryl called and texted her, but Jackie didn't respond. Cheryl called Clay, but he wouldn't pick up or respond to texts. Clay called Cheryl back straight away, saying he had no idea where Jackie was. And he claimed the last time he saw Jackie in person was when he'd seen her at their meeting with Jeff, the attorney. So Clay told Cheryl that it was during that meeting that Jackie had agreed to let Marcus stay with him for a few more days. So actually you know, uh, Jackie wouldn't be picking Marcus up. So he has no idea why Jackie would tell Cheryl that she was headed over to get Marcus because he was staying a few more days. So Cheryl's put off by this call and is skeptical of Clay's story. But Clay ended the call before Cheryl could say anything else. So she immediately reported Jackie missing to the Jackson police. It had only been a few hours after Cheryl last spoke to her sister, but she felt like something was wrong given the threats Clay had made to her in the past. And it was the next morning that Jeff received a very shocking phone call. From who? From the police. And on that call, a detective not only told Jeff that Jackie was missing, but also that Jeff had been probably the last person to see her. This news was chilling. But then Jeff received an even more shocking phone call. He said, oh, hey, Jeff, just want to let you know Jackie's missing. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, Jackie's missing. I just want to let you know. I mean, just, you know, matter of fact, no concern. And so I came up with a couple statements to see his reaction. And uh, one of them was, oh, my gosh, I just saw her yesterday. I can't believe she's dead. And he never never said anything, never responded like, oh, no, we don't know she's dead. She's just missing nothing. It was weird. It was chilling. There were so many questions running through Jeff's head, like, What happened to Jackie after the meeting? Where did she go? Where was she? You know their drill. To answer all these questions, we got to go back. In June of 2010, several months before Jackie met Jeff, she finally found the courage to confide in her sister Cheryl about the abuse that she'd been suffering in her marriage. She told Cheryl one story about Clay getting his gun out of his truck dragging Jackie into the house by her hair and throwing her against a wall. And he'd done all of this in front of the kids. Things got even worse for the couple in March of 2011 after Clay lost yet another job. And things are financially dire for the couple and the loss of income meant that they would lose their home. Jackie, however, really saw this as a silver lining and knew that this was her chance to escape. So she and the kids moved in with Cheryl, who lived in a nearby town of St. Genevieve. And that was when Jackie filed for divorce. And it was only then that Jackie told her family about the full extent of what had been going on in her marriage to Clay and all of the abuse. And once Jackie moved in with Cheryl, Clay moved to Jackson, Missouri, which is where he got himself that new girlfriend. But even though he was romantically linked to someone else, Clay continued to threaten his estranged wife, telling her that she wasn't safe at Cheryl's. And Cheryl begged Jackie to call the cops and get them involved. But Jackie thought this would only make things worse and would only make him more angry, and she had good reason to still be fearful. The most dangerous time for women in a violent relationship is immediately after they leave the family home. In fact, 75% of domestic violence-related homicides occur immediately following a separation, and there's a 75% increase in violence for two years following the separation as well. But Jackie really remained hopeful that with time, things would improve because after all, Clay was dating someone new. And soon Jackie opened herself up to dating as well. She started dating a new man and she quickly became pretty smitten with him. The couple had even started talking about moving in together. So this is good on all fronts. And in the week before Jackie and Clay met with Jeff, Jackie told Clay about her new relationship. You know, she was really sick of feeling like that she couldn't live her own life and it was time for her to move on. And oddly, Clay seemed totally fine with everything. And he gave Jackie the strong impression that she was no longer in danger of pursuing a divorce. 
So, of course, once Jeff found out his client was missing, he fully cooperated with the police. After all, he was a potential witness who had been the last person to see Jackie besides Clay. But within hours of Clay's call to Jeff, Clay then showed up at Jeff's office in person, and he said he was there because he had a question that he wanted to ask him. And then I went back to my office in Cape, and he just walks in. I want to, can I hire you? And I'm like, you know, because I think the police are going to want to talk to me. I probably ought to have a lawyer. And I said, well, you can't hire me. I'm a witness. What are you witness to? I said, well, you guys came in yesterday. I said, I'm sure, you know, I didn't tell him I already gave a statement. Uh, I said, you can't hire me um, because I'll I'll be a witness either for or against you. He was a psychopath. He had no emotion about it. He was just like, oh, he's probably going to talk to me, so I probably should have a lawyer. It was weird. As more time passed and Jackie's absence continued, her loved ones became increasingly concerned. And this was especially because Jackie would never bail on her responsibilities to her triplets. At 10 a.m. on June 2nd, the same day that Clay asked Jeff to represent him, Jackie's Honda Pilot was found abandoned on the shoulder off Interstate 55 near the 105-mile marker just north of Jackson, Missouri. The car had a flat tire, but none of Jackie's personal items were found inside the car. And strangely, their tire rim wasn't bent like it should have been if the car was driven on a flat for any distance. Okay, so what does this discovery mean? There's more questions that arise now, right? So maybe this isn't as cut and dry as it initially seemed. Had Jackie gotten into a car accident? Was something else going on? Did she have car trouble and walk to look for help? Did she have car trouble, walk to look for help, and then meet with foul play? If she was driving on the interstate away from town, where was she going? Does this mean that Clay actually wasn't involved in his wife's disappearance? The police didn't know, at least not yet. And of course, law enforcement needed to speak with Clay. And during their interview with him, Clay told them that after meeting with their attorney, Jeff, in our first degree, he and Jackie went back to his house. And Jackie had to bring him a key to a P.O. box. They had to handle just some, like, life business. Then they talked for a bit, and they had a nap, which is interesting because they're separated and he has a girlfriend. Yeah. (laughs) But anyways... This is his story. So then, according to him, when they woke up, Jackie and him had an argument. And this is what he says happens next. So he said he refused to give her her car keys at some point and that he threw them into a tree where they got stuck. This guy sounds like such a dick. This is just the story he's telling. And it's like, you're that guy. You threw her car keys into a tree. So apparently after this, Jackie took off on foot and Clay went to the store. And he claims that when he got home around 6 p.m., Jackie's car was gone, and so was she. So Clay assumed that she'd gone back to her sister's house. So when investigators looked into where their son Marcus had actually been this whole time, they learned that he wasn't even at his house. Instead, Marcus was with Clay's girlfriend at her place in Illinois, where he and Clay stayed the night before Jackie went missing. So none of this is making sense, and the story is not adding up. Not at all. And at this point, the police were looking squarely at Clay, obviously. And as far as their investigation into Jackie's Honda Pilot and the state that it had been found in, the police determined that the whole flat tire thing had been staged. And Jackie's tire appeared to have been intentionally punctured. Clay picked up on the police's suspicion of him and he lawyered up immediately. And when the police searched Jeff's home the next day, they found some chilling evidence. There were faint remnants of blood on the walls in the hallway, and it looked like someone had attempted a bit of a cleanup. Then something else caught their attention. A 20-foot section of the hallway carpet had been removed. The missing carpet was found shoved in the corner of the roof crawl space, and it had been cut into separate pieces and revealed several large blood stains. Clay's car and boat were also searched, and horrifyingly, blood was found in both of those places as well. Tess would ultimately confirm that the blood in the house belonged to Jackie. But the blood found on Clay's truck and in his boat wasn't human, but it was actually fish blood. And Clay often went fishing, so this was a somewhat logical explanation for that. Right. And then there was a search of Clay's cell phone. And there they find a really interesting key piece of evidence that reveals a lot about the type of person we're dealing with here. So... Apparently, there was a video that Clay filmed himself, of himself. And in this video, he's doing something odd. He's seeming to be staging his own truck. And he's wiping fish blood on his truck. And he's narrating in this video what he's doing. And he's basically saying, 
hey, I'm doing this to breadcrumb the cops. And this is like a super bizarre power play. It's unclear if he knew the cops would find it on his phone and he's taunting them. It's unclear he does this for his own entertainment to watch back like a weird narcissist. It's unclear why he would make this video. But whatever, it did exist and it looked bad. He's staging, like what's going on? So 10 days after Jackie goes missing, the police conducted their second interview with Clay. He denied that Jackie went to his house to pick up Marcus. He claimed she never came over to discuss financial matters. Then they confronted Clay about Jackie's blood being found in the house. But Clay had a response. He stated that Jackie had an accident in the kitchen, which caused her face to bleed so much that blood dripped onto the carpet as she ran to the bathroom. And that he and Jackie had cleaned this up together. It was no big deal. That's why he didn't mention it to the cops in the first place. Clay then claimed he removed the bloodstained carpet not to hide it from police. He wanted to hide it from his landlord, of course. He then gave a very vague account of his movements for the rest of the evening and did not provide any sort of significant alibi. So he's changing stories. He's cherry picking what's important. He's, I'm so annoyed probably on the behalf of the police for having to deal with this asshole. And while Jackie's blood being in Clay's house seems like it would be enough to arrest Clay on the spot, there was no way at this point for police to conclusively refute the story since Jackie hadn't been found. In the days that followed Jackie's disappearance, those in her orbit retraced their last encounters with her. And Jeff thought back to the day of his meeting with Jackie and Clay, which was more than likely the last day of Jackie's life. He recalled Clay's shifting demeanor and his sudden mood swings, which in retrospect took on this new meaning. And uh, three times, all of a sudden, I mean, he just went from laughing to just absolutely silent, tensed up. I mean, tensed up when he got mad. He got mad three different times. And he sat there with his arms on my table, tensed up, staring straight at me. And he just sat there for about 10, 15 seconds, just angry. And then, you know, she would rub his arms. Oh, you know, we got to do this. It's like he was so angry, but then it dawned on him that he can't do that. So he just relaxed and they started joking around again. Uh, Then they started talking about the custody schedule. And he wanted all summer. She said, well, you know, you're getting every weekend during the school year. I get it. I got to have every weekend during the summer um, in a week or two to, you know, take kids on vacation or whatever. And when she, she said that, he tensed up again and just sat there staring at me. He, I don't think he was staring at me. I think he was just staring through me. I think he was just staring. But his fists, you know, he had clenched fists. He didn't punch the tail or anything. He just rested his arms on the table and sat there. And then he snapped out of it again. I don't know that she saw him get that and that angry because he was staring straight ahead and but it worried me you know no it, it was all good for a while but then when he did that i was worried for her again because it dawned on me by then of course that what my previous file said jeff felt obligated to confidentially warn jackie after the meeting that things might not go as smoothly as she was hoping so right after the meeting with jackie and clay ended jeff called jackie she didn't answer but she called him right back she calls me back. And then I told her, don't be alone with him. She said, oh, I'm just running to his house. The kids are there with his girlfriend. So she thought he had a girlfriend. Everything's great. So I just, you know, I told her, don't be alone with him. And, and that was about it. She hung up. And, and then next morning, my son calls and said, Dad, the police are banging on my door. Well, they stopped by and, you know, Jackie's missing. So the police seem to have a mountain of evidence against Clay. There's the blood in his house, a sloppy cleanup, a removed portion of blood-soaked carpet from a hallway. Then there's a video of him staging his truck to mislead police by wiping fish blood on it. Then there's witness statements detailing how he threatened to kill Jackie in the past on several occasions, and the lack of alibi. But despite all of this, Clay was not arrested. And we can only speculate as to why and the strategy police were operating under. And my assumption is it's because they still hadn't found Jackie. And clearly, they were hoping to. So, Clay remained a free man. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Our first degree Jeff was closely following the police investigation into the disappearance of his client, Jackie Waller. The early investigation had moved at a rapid speed and turned up a ton of disturbing evidence that looked really bad for Clay. And the onlookers expected Clay to be arrested quickly. But weeks started to pass, and then months, and no arrest came. Then eventually, Jackie's purse, credit cards, and parts of her cell phone were found in a camera bag in a ravine off of the southbound side of the 155, near where her Honda Pilot had been discovered. So that's not good. So the discovery of Jackie's items just reinforced the belief that law enforcement already had, that Jackie was no longer alive, which is horrible, and also that Clay was likely responsible. Clay had remained free in the months that passed, and it was agonizing for everyone who loved Jackie. And the fear, of course, was that he might get away with this. And Jeff often found himself replaying moments from these conversations that he had with both Jackie and Clay. I thought he was just a psychopath. He wanted to kill her, and if she left, he was going to kill her. It was that simple. You know, just like, okay, I got a list of things I'm going to do. If this happens, I'll do this. If this happens, I'll do this. If she leaves, I'll kill her. It was just kind of like, that's, that's the impression I got of him. Even though months had passed, the search for Jackie and the focus on Clay continued. Eventually, surveillance footage had been uncovered from the afternoon that Jackie went missing. And this footage showed Clay in a parking lot of a toy store at 6.47 p.m. where he met his girlfriend and his son Marcus. They could see that there was a small boat and a large garbage can in the back of the truck. And additional evidence revealed that Clay then went to a car wash where he meticulously scrubbed the boat clean. Police had also received reports from witnesses in Alexander County, Illinois, who said that they'd seen a man in a boat near a heavily wooded location northeast of the Cape on the Mississippi River called Devil's Island. The man that they had seen matched the description of Clay. Police searched this area, but they could find no trace of Jackie. And as time went on, Clay cooperated with the police less and less, and he also scoffed at the community's concern for Jackie and mocked the efforts to find her. And at least one person who had been involved in the ground search for Jackie came forward and claimed that Clay had actually taunted the search parties and the police. Like, what a disgusting piece of what shit. What an awful person. Like, it's even, horrible. even if you're pretending to be innocent, like, that's not, why would, what are you doing? Like, you're so confident you're going to get away with it that you can do shit like that. Yeah, it's, it's so gross. So he would also drive by and give them the middle finger as he drove by. So... And also, <laughs> he would be laughing and blowing kisses at them while he did this. Like, truly a fucking evil, evil Sociopath. Person. It just gets worse and worse. And all the while, the police continued to find more relevant evidence against him. They found a package of Jackie's Anthem Blue Cross business cards 10 miles away from where her car was found on a different highway. But as all this was happening, they still continued to fall short of finding Jackie herself. Right. And by this point, Jackie and Clay's triplets, Abigail, Marcus, and Annie, had been temporarily placed in Jackie's sister, Cheryl's custody. And a Facebook page was set up for people to share investigation updates. But soon, as Facebook groups and Facebook pages are to do, this group turned kind of ugly. So using a fake profile, Clay had actually posted on the Find Jackie Facebook page. In a post directed at Cheryl, the mysterious profile wrote, you are dead. I promise if those kids get hurt, it's your fault. I will get you. Five, 10, 25 years from now, you have it coming. So let's put this in perspective here. Cheryl believes that this man killed her sister. This was not a joke, and she took this to be a very legitimate threat, as she should. She reported it to the police, and it was a really good thing she did. Because in September of 2011, people finally got the news they were hoping for. Clay had been arrested but not for the reason you might think. Clay was actually arrested in charge for making that online threat to kill Cheryl. But this is a big deal because it's a federal offense. 
the following month, Clay pleaded guilty and he got five years in federal prison. So even though he wasn't arrested for the murder charge yet, this kind of got the ball rolling. He's in custody. He's at least not walking free anymore. And police can have him in one place while they continue investigating. Right. And despite not having Jackie's remains and the entire case being completely circumstantial against Clay, he would finally face murder charges. And it's unclear what changed in terms of the case against him. But luckily, at this point, the state believed that they could prosecute Clay, even if they never found Jackie's body. Clay was charged with first degree murder and evidence tampering. He initially pleaded not guilty, but if he was convicted, he was facing the death penalty. And for as many times as our first degree Jeff has stepped into a courtroom, he's only ever had to testify as a witness twice. And one of those times was at Clay's arraignment. I didn't feel anything at that point for him. You know, then I testified about the three times he got really angry. You know, I wasn't afraid he was going to get me. He didn't have anyone on the outside to do anything for him or to anybody. Um, and he wasn't getting out of jail. Couldn't make bond. I don't know what the bond was set at, but it was millions if, if there was a bond. He didn't care. He didn't care that his children would be without their mother. Um, I don't think he thought about the consequences of what he did. Like, oh, I might go to prison. They won't have their father either. But, you know, I don't think he thought about that. I thought he'd just think, oh, my I got to kill her, I guess. I have to. That's what I, what I said I would do. You know, I don't think he planned. He planned to kill her, but I don't think he planned on getting the kids back. I think he cared if he got the kids or not. I think he just, like I said, check it off the list and move on to my next one. You know, watch the boat, kill Jackie, you know, go to the movie, whatever. While there was some relief that Clay would finally be prosecuted for what he'd done to Jackie, her family desperately wanted her body back to lay her to rest. And facing a potential death sentence and what would surely be a conviction, Clay struck a plea deal. In 2013, in exchange for leading investigators to Jackie's body, Clay pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. And he led police to where he left Jackie almost two years to the day of her murder. Then he told the police what happened that day. He told police that the day before Jackie went missing, and they met with their lawyer, Jeff, he took the boat to Devil's Island on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River. There, and then, he dug a grave. And then he spent the night with his girlfriend in Illinois. The next day, Clave drove from Illinois back to Missouri to attend the meeting, and he planned to follow through with his sinister plan afterwards. Clave told his girlfriend, who was watching their son Marcus, to stay away from his house in Jackson that day. But Clay led Jackie to believe both his girlfriend and Marcus were back at his house. Following their meeting with Jeff, Jackie went back to Clay's, not knowing that the whole thing was a ruse. Clay told police that Jackie followed him home because she'd asked for one last bang, yeah, okay, and went back to his house to have sex. And of course, this is probably a fucking lie, especially because Jackie believed that Clay's girlfriend was at the house waiting for them. Like with their son. Come on. Their, like, what a... F- he's even confessing, like, the jig is up, and he still has to, like, throw in ego strokes for himself. Yep. That are lies. Yep. Yep. So then Clay said that once they got back to his place, he accidentally hit his head against Jackie's nose, causing it to bleed profusely. And as a result, she threatened to file charges against him, which allegedly put him over the edge. In a burst of anger, Clay bludgeoned and strangled Jackie to death. Or this is his story, which is obviously we all know a lie. I think he just, I mean, had something in his hand, like a wrench or something, you know, something heavy and just bludgeoned her to death. Because there was blood spatter, a lot of blood on the walls, healing, a lot of blood. He did it in the hallway or started it maybe in the kitchen, but it ended in the hallway because um, there was pools of blood in the carpet. So he kept hitting her in the head, it looks like. Um, and then the blood splatter on the ceiling and on the walls, it was uh, gruesome. Then Clay transported Jackie first to meet his girlfriend in that parking lot with Marcus at that toy store. And then he returned to the grave he dug the day before. Clay was entirely detached when he gave this version of events. There was no sign of any remorse whatsoever, even when he admitted to warning Jackie that if she left and took the kids, he would kill her. Police didn't believe Clay was provoked or that he lost control. The fact that he dug the grave the previous day was evidence enough that this wasn't second-degree murder. He had premeditated this. And when Jeff finally learned the full extent of what happened, it was an emotional moment for him. He wondered if he could have somehow stopped this from happening. My thought was, okay, what should I have done differently? What should I have done? And what could I have done? Um, what what did he do from the first time she was in my office to the second time that made her now believe? She believed for years that he would kill her, for years. Um, you know, I, I just that, that's what we kept replaying. What, what could I have done that this wouldn't have happened? 
So even though Clay took a plea deal, he was still looking at serious time, even more so because he was facing federal charges. Because he dug the grave in Illinois but planned to kill Jackie in Missouri, he committed an interstate act of domestic violence, which is a federal offense. If he just would have buried her in Missouri, that'd be it. No federal jurisdiction. Now they may have tried to do something with uh, domestic violence, but the Fed's jurisdiction for domestic violence usually includes crossing state lines. If it's just everything happens within Missouri, then it's supposed to be no federal jurisdiction. Yeah, so when the Feds got involved, um, that just added a ton more time. Clay was sentenced to 20 years, the maximum penalty allowable for second-degree murder. The judge described Clay as a killer who is completely without a conscience. Their triplets, Abigail, Marcus, and Annie, were eventually adopted by their aunt Cheryl and her husband. Meanwhile, Clay was off in prison serving his time, and probably to the surprise of no one, he was still up to no good. So it turns out, in addition to taking Jackie's life, he also intended to profit off of it. This is what happened. So it turned out that Clay was in the same cell block with a man named Cedric Dean. And he and Clay had gotten to talking, and Cedric was using his time in this facility for good, and he would help other inmates obtain their GEDs, etc. So he was smart, and he was a good writer. So Clay told Cedric that he had a lucrative book deal and needed someone to help write his story. This was a lie. There was no book deal, by the way. But Cedric, he's a nice guy, so he agrees to help him. And over several months, they worked on Clay's book, and this book is called, quote, If You Take My Kids, I'll Kill You. Colon, the public confession of Missouri's most notorious wife killer. What a fucking asshole. Dude. This is, a, this is what he named his book. What the fuck? He's calling himself notorious. He's owning his abusive, threatening nature. I think it's so disgusting. It's shocking. So it's, that's one of the most insane things I've ever heard. So as the writing process continued, Cedric began to grow more and more concerned because Clay had no remorse and he wasn't sorry at all for anything that he'd done. And he seemed like he was just reveling in his crimes and all of the hurt that he had caused. He wrote how he first thought about killing Jackie a year before the actual murder when she suggested taking the children after learning that Clay had an affair. So this was not aligning with Cedric's conscience and he really, really wanted to do the right thing. So he smuggled the manuscript out of prison to be given to the authorities so they knew what kind of man that Clay really was. And the timeline in terms of when the police were actually made aware of the manuscript are kind of unclear, but years later in 2016 was when the police actually addressed it. They spoke to Cedric Dean in prison, who gave them more information about the murder, and these were details that only Clay would have known. Cedric agreed to testify against Clay, which led to additional charges being filed against him. Clay was charged with one count of interstate travel to commit domestic violence, which carried a maximum penalty of life imprisonment. Clay would plead guilty to these charges as well, and he was handed another 35 years in prison. More time for this fucker is great. Stay in there forever. But none of this brings Jackie back or fill the void in her triplets' lives. And Jeff can't help but feel that justice, and I put that in quotes, for Jackie, whatever that is, whatever that's supposed to look like, has fallen short in some way. Well, personally, I believe in the death penalty, and... Uh... It would have been nice for him to get that. Seems to me, like I said, he planned it. He mistreated her for years and then planned her murder. Killed the mother of five-year-old triplets. Feds help. The feds get them a lot more years. If you don't believe in the death penalty, then yeah, justice was served. But I think most of us that believe in the death penalty in whatever cases, I, I don't want like frontier justice or anything. He can't personally envision beating someone to death over the head over and over and over. It's terrifying that people can be that cold. Now, the good thing is, of course, he thought he got away with it, which is when they start making mistakes. And everyone thought, you know, he was kind of convincing. He convinced her that he wasn't going to do anything to her and was giving a divorce. The fact that someone could be that convincing after years of at least emotional abuse suddenly just convince you that you're not going to kill you and then do it the way he did it. I, that type of person is just scary. I mean, just scary. There's no doubt Jackie's case has left an indelible mark on Jeff. And he has some sobering advice for any women with abusive partners who find themselves going through the process to not be lulled into a false sense of security. The only thing that surprised me about the case was that she 100% knew she was going to be killed to six months later, 100% knew that he was giving her an uncontested divorce. I, I still don't understand how that could have occurred. When you're thinking back about what could I have done differently, you know, every time a divorce client came in and said he's going to kill me, which is next to never, if someone did, and then they came in later and said, oh, 
everything's fine, I would tell them the story about Jackie Waller. You may think everything's fine. Or if someone came in and said, he's threatened to kill me for 10 years, but now he's ready for a divorce, then I would tell them the story of Jackie Waller and, and how she thought everything was fine. Tell them to prepare themselves a little better than just don't be alone with them. I would tell them the actual story of what happened. And so, you know, they could better protect themselves. Good. But once that happened to Jackie, you know, everything was more focused on if they came in and were afraid, you know, like, can I get a next part? To, yeah. But if he means to do you harm, that piece of paper won't do anything. It may stop phone calls. It may stop drive-bys. But if he wants to kill you, piece of paper is not going to prevent it. It's that simple. So I was more, I think, more focused on making sure they understood that if you suffer from years of abuse, if now all of a sudden they're a great person, that may not be the case. We can never really know what's going on behind someone's eyes. Clay joked around with Jackie at their meeting with Jeff, all the while he was planning to murder her within the next couple of hours. He joked around with her and forced a smile knowing he dug a grave for her the previous day. That's one of the scariest parts about this story. The cycle of abuse means people desperately want to believe their abuser has changed. When there's years of evidence underneath it, that indicates that they haven't, won't, and can't. Psychopaths like Clay come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. They wear a variety of masks. So if one of them slips up and accidentally reveals a glimmer of the true monster they are and what they're capable of, believe them. huge thank you to Jeff for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Please join our Patreon. We have so much fun bonus content over there for you and come back tomorrow for a brand new episode of Killing Time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are The Daily Journal, ABC News, Court Documents, True Crime Daily, The Southeast Missourian, KFVS 12 News, The Huffington Post, Medium.com, Fox 2 Now, CBS News, ChillingCrimes.com, The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Midwest Crime Files. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.